Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday the 5th of March, and we are again talking about China and COVID-19 and PPE and all of those things that appear to be the only legitimate sources of news. But before we start, I do want to give you a give you some very positive news that you may have missed in relation oh, yes. to COVID-19. The Irish Times has now published an article that is slightly critical of China's handling of anything. Say it ain't so, Gary. Say it ain't so. It is. I mean, here are some articles that the uh, the Irish Times has published in the last week about China. Coronavirus, an opportunity for Beijing to usher in the Asi- or the Chinese century. Coronavirus, China is suddenly looking very attractive. And the West pays heavy price for demonizing China over virus. Uh, you, you have to help me with that one. What's the heavy price the West is paying and how? The boss? The who? Everywhere? Well, you see, the the subheading is populous country held up as template for successful containment while West struggles. You mean country where they weld people into their houses and chip them? Yes, if you haven't seen the, if the listener hasn't seen that video, there's a video of armed army or police literally welding people into their apartments with sheet metal to ensure they uh, socially distance themselves. No word yet, and if they ever came back and unwelded those people, or if it just became yeah. some sort of tomb. In these cases, Gary, I'm reminded of a man I used to know who used to go to Medjugorje regularly, not so much for the pilgrimage, but for the fun, as a holiday, a cheap holiday to a pretty place. And he always come back and say, you know what, we're being screwed in this country. We can go out in Medjugorje, four of us can go out and have a pizza and a beer for a tenner. It's absolutely outrageous. You know, my God. And I used to say to him, yeah, you know, the thing is, though, on the one hand, fratricidal, genocidal civil war, destruction of your economy, the demolition of your infrastructure and the consumption of your sunk capital. On the other hand, pizza and beer for four people for a tenner. Swings and roundabouts, you know, you make a balance. China, on the one hand, capable of controlling the virus more effectively, perhaps, than countries in the West. On the other hand, killing religious people to take their lungs and give them to party members. So, Gary, it's you know, it's a balance. It's a balancing act. It's a swings and roundabout. Swings and roundabout. But here's here's two more things that they've uh, that the Irish Times has published today, or within the last twenty four hours. China coronavirus. China mourns thousands of martyrs. And uh, coronavirus. Aer Lingus pilots describe privilege of flying to China to get PPE. Ah, lads. But as I said, they have finally published something that is. Slightly critical or looks at the weird links between China and a whole lot of things in this situation. And it's this, Michael. Yes. Now, you've got to realise they really, uh, I think they, we can say that they really went for China. So I should hold on to my hat. Unfortunately, they went for China relative to their general stance on this. And it's this. Oh, okay. This is the headline. Some protection equipment from China, not ideal. <laughs> so not ideal. Hmm. Yes. And this, of course, is referring to the uh, recent supply of PPE from China. 200 million, I believe, was the cost of it. The HSE came out and said um, that it wasn't up, it wasn't that there were issues with it. It was that it was of a different type uh, to the sort used by Irish health workers. And that, that was the issue with it. Effectively, the uh, we ordered the right things. It's not our fault if our healthcare staff can't use them. This came in response to people publishing uh, photos of themselves wearing the gowns from the order, right. which came up to like halfway up the forearm. You see, that's the thing. These, and I've been saying it for a long time. 
Irish health workers have ridiculously long arms, Kerry. And the HSC has recommended they shorten them, and they haven't. Yeah. So, again, not the fault of the HSC. You you people, there's people, there are always going to be whingers. There's always going to be whingers. It's like, and you, you know, you, you can't judge an experience simply by one factor, you know? On the whole, Mary Queen of Scots, her experience of fathering Gay Castle, very positive. You can't take just one incident from her experience, which admittedly was, you know, not so good, to say that it was a, you know, on TripAdvisor, she still would have given Fothering Gay Castle four stars. You know, fifth star would have been lost for having the head cut off bit. But other than that, lovely trouble. Think the Chinese people can't be responsible for the weird anatomical defect of Irish healthcare workers. I mean, no one can be, really. No, I mean, I think there should be a... They are a race unto themselves, much like the Morlocks in uh, The Time Machine. Now, weren't the Morlocks the ones that used to eat the Eloy? I have no confirmation of what healthcare workers do in their spare time. No, I just think if that's the line we were pursuing, that really the Chinese would be more like the Morlocks and we would be more like the Eloy. I'm not sure if that could be construed as racist. Well, I was thinking more of the sort of the Oregon... Uh, harvesting thing. Yeah, that's fair. That is fair. They've done that to themselves. Yeah, which they do, and they, I'm sure they do it very well, but they do it an awful lot more than most other people. Mm. So the general, it looked like the general media line on this was going to be that um, it was different, but not uh, different, but equal, or separate, but equal, perhaps. Okay. And then, unfortunately, it looks like Susan Mitchell in the Business Post got sent the full HSE audit of it. And it looks like out of ten items, they got four totally unusable. Have you noticed Susan Mitchell tends to get an awful lot of stuff, doesn't she? I I think I've said repeatedly that Susan Mitchell is, I think, the um, best health reporter and writer in this country. I have a feeling, I'm sure she's not just, it's not just this, she's a a hard worker and investigative good writer and all that. But I think she has a little friend somewhere as well. Because these documents seem to be falling into her hands rather too too regularly. Oh, I'd say she has many friends within the... Many uh, ones. But that's part of her job, I suppose, to cultivate these relationships and to be seen to be trustworthy that she won't drop them in. It's so well done, Susan Mitchell, again. Yeah, it was. Also, apparently, the uh, the masks are uh, useless. Useless? Uh, well, the HSE's audit says should not be issued for any purpose, even for use for short periods by patients awaiting assessment. I mean, how bad can they be? I mean, I'm just thinking, and this is not me making a funny joke here, if they're that clinically defective, I mean, would they, could they be used by the general public? I mean, when we have a situation where people are being advised by experts uh, outside of Ireland that if they can sew... They could, they should jolly well make their own cloth mask at home and wear them outside. That if these, like, unless they actually have holes in them and they're hang off. The I, face. I think, I think the, I think the thing that really gave them pause is that um, they received no specification documentation with the masks. So the masks have embossed on them N95. Right. But they also do not look like respirator masks at the all. The N95 ones are those ones with the little hole in the middle of the plastic thing? They are, they're respirators. I think the N95 classification is literally it will stop 95% of particles or particulate matter. Right. Uh, these do not. These look like cloth masks or just standard cloth uh, masks. Yeah, but if they are, well then, and if they're not defective, it's far as cloth then, and they don't want to use them, or, or, or is it that they're going to send them back and get their money back? I suppose they're sending I don't them think that's really an option at this point. To the, well, the, then hand them out to the general public. Yeah. But then again, that would be going against policy, and that we'll touch on later. Anyway. I haven't seen the audit document, and I haven't seen the order forms, but I would say this is not actually the HSE's fault as such. Buying masks from China and buying 
protective gear from China at the minute is ridiculous. Some of the stories we've been hearing about things that are happening. It happened to the Dutch. It happened to the Czechs, does it? Or the Slovaks? Uh, the French, I mean, it's this is not a... Spanish. Yeah. Um, the, what was it? The Spanish, their tests didn't work. And then the Chinese said that they didn't come from a registered company. There were a number of problems different with different tests. Uh, I'm not sure where... Like, the Spanish ones, I think simply they were faulty in some way. Some tests that arrived in the last... Somewhere in the last few days... Uh, were apparently uh, infected with the coronavirus. Yeah, I saw that. That wasn't that wasn't a great one. The you, know, um, you, you kind of think it's going to make it less effective <laughs> as a test. One of the uh, founders of Harris uh, Backett, which is a, a law firm, an international law firm, specializes in business in China. Sorry, Harris Bricken. They said they specialize in largely showing Western companies how to work in China. Right. Because it's an entirely different place and it's entirely different uh, standards you need to apply to. And uh, courts are very fond of siding with Chinese companies over Western companies. You amaze me. I know. But they said they've been taking a load. A load of people have been reaching out to them about exporting PPE. And they said that one of the major problems they found is that of those that have safety certification, particularly the Inosha, which is the American Mm. One, uh, 90% of the ones they've seen have, when they conducted due diligence, turned out to have been fake. <laughs> and that is, like a, you, that is a law firm with people on the ground in China that can do that easily, or relatively actually easily. fake in the paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just putting the, um, like they will put N95 or CE or whatever requirements you have on the mask and on the packaging. Yeah, but they yeah. just won't meet the requirements. On the basis that, sure, it'll be all right. Like, you you said you wanted an N95 mask, and we printed N95 on it, and therefore yeah, it's an N95 mask, and what do you what want do you from want? us? They also make the point that a lot of Chinese factories have been severely hurt from this and may have to close. So there's a lot of people offering to make masks, and then you pay them millions, and you just get nothing from them. And they're also seeing a lot of people who have like, suppliers they've worked with for years. They just get screwed by them. So it looks like it's an absolute nightmare to get stuff out of China at the minute. They also make the point that the Chinese, there's a little bit of geopolitics with this, in that yeah. China would prefer that masks, good masks and good PPE, only goes to countries with which it has an interest in building influence. So there is a little bit of politics going on here as well. And Ireland, not a country disliked by China, but a European Union country and not one of its major uh, areas of interest. Italy, Greece, they'll probably get better in general. Mm. It also looks like China has just banned a load of um, companies from exporting. That's not how they said it, but that looks like it'll be the end result of it. Is this because it's material they want to keep for themselves? Well, it looks like the Chinese wanted to keep a lot of material in the country in case COVID-19 resurges. And that looks like it's already happening. Although China are blaming that on foreigners coming into the country. But basically they changed the requirements for exporters. So there were a hundred and... According to what I've seen, there were just over a hundred Chinese companies that um, export to Europe in the medical devices kind of field. And only about a fifth of those are actually registered uh, inside China. So they produce things that meet the requirements for European medical devices. Yeah. And really don't deal with the Chinese market at all because they don't sell anything in China. So why would you bother to register your products in China when you're not going to sell in China, even if you're a Chinese company? Right. But now they've changed the rules so that you need to have, you need to register every individual product in China, which involves testing and involves legal work. 
And so now about 75%, 75 to 80% of those companies that exported medical goods to Europe don't have that registration. So they legally cannot export out of China. And so what people think is happening is that China wants to keep those medical goods inside China, but they want to be able to spin it as if they are dealing with the quality concerns that Europe has seen by saying, well, we're cutting down on unregulated exporters, ignoring the fact that all of the exporters who've been impacted have European registration right. and meet yeah. those requirements. So China introduced restrictions on the export of material which might be useful to them in the dealing with the outbreak. It's not, of course, unique to China, let's be fair. In the European Union, where we are all equal members, and we're all a member of a family, we're all Europeans together, first thing the Germans did was close the borders when it came to the export of useful material and everything that was being produced in Germany stayed in Germany. Uh, I don't think that happened here, but we will see. No, we would have, uh, I would have heard of it had happened here because we have Medtronic and they make ventilators. So Yes. Had that market constricted, there would have been international media attention on Ireland for doing it. Yeah. It has really been a, a bad week for the... Well, actually, it's been a great week for the Chinese, I suppose. Um been a bad week for everyone around the Chinese because, I mean, we had the Chinese being appointed to um, the consultative group of the UN Human Rights Council, overseeing the appointment of, I believe it's 17 global monitors and special rapporteurs. In the human rights area, I mean, you, 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 I don't care, uh, it's it's a bit of a, me in the UN, is a, it's, shall we say, it's a long and winding road and I've been but you have to think that we do we not get to a point where the self satire of the United Nations becomes so grotesque that people actually say, you know what, maybe it is time to call us a day. We had a good run because and absolutely, I'm absolutely serious about this. It's now gone to the well. I think it's a long time, but now it's clearly, it's clearly a situation where it's not that the UN is just sort of not quite the shining example of world cooperation. Uh, and the Brotherhood of Man that maybe we had hoped it would be, but rather it's actually dangerous. It is ridiculously hypocritical and corrupt when a country like China is, and anybody who wants to should go out, for example, and have a Google and look at the, the list of the countries that sit on the United Nations Human Rights Commission. It's just comic. It's absolutely fucking comic. But the problem is, it has this per, around it a, per, a penumbra of of authority and of respectability and of global humanity about it that, as you have pointed out, Gary, most of the time international law doesn't exist. It's kind of stuff we just make up as we go along, and if it sticks and people agree to it, then we call it law. And if it doesn't, then we say, oh, it's just something we tried out. The nearest thing we have to an international legislator is the United Nations. So, for example, when people want to go to war, generally the first thing they do, they go to the United Nations to see if they can get a they can get a resolution through, and that'll cover their. But really, that's covering their arses so they they don't end up being tried in the Hague for war crimes. This is now dangerous because the nature of the corruption is that it's no longer even giving decent scientific advice in these situations. It, 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 political concerns are becoming our primary concerns, and it's potentially and actually putting people's lives at risk. Uh, we've seen what happens in Africa. We saw what happened in Haiti. This it's just a morass. It's like I, I dare say, is it is it quite as bad as FIFA or the Olympic Committee of once upon a time? I don't know. But it's time to close the gaff down. I mean, I did I'm find sure. it particularly funny that one of the first positions that China will be 
uh, on this group for, and therefore yeah. we'll be advising on who takes the job. Oh, yes. Is the UN yes. Special Raconteur on the right of every person. It's an incredibly long title. Uh, to receive the highest possible stat, or basically the uh, physical and mental health. Basically health. the person who will be monitoring global physical health and mental health, which is quite handy considering the COVID-19 outbreak will probably take up a lot of that person's time. So having China being able to influence who's hired for that position, only a good thing. I yeah, also yeah. like the fact they did it the same week where the Chinese were accused of harvesting the organs of political prisoners for uh, lung transplants for COVID-19 patients. The UN is many things, but it does have a fantastic sense of timing. Well, brilliant. I mean, really, you couldn't write it. If you tried to, you'd say, no, no, we, 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 that doesn't pass the sniff test. It is... Uh... Oh, actually, on that, when we were, I meant to bring it up when we were talking about the Chinese masks. Because we were talking yeah. about masks before, and now a massive debate over whether people, the health services should recommend people get masks. I think the Americans are going in that direction, or are... Um, or have just gone in that direction, depending on when, when this goes up. But there was a, an interesting study I saw the other day. Um, came from Yale. A lot of the, not just, weirdly enough, not just the public health school of Yale, although there are a ton of those guys, but also from the engineering and uh, economics department. They all came together. So it was called the Case for Universal Cloth Ma- Mask Adoption and Policies to Increase the Supply of Medical Masks for Healthcare Workers. And they basically looked into whether or not it is a case that the general public should be wearing masks and also what the economic impact of that would be. Yes. And so they said that the the benefit of every additional cloth mask worn by the public are conservatively in the $3,000 to $6,000 range due to their impact in slowing the spread of the virus and the impact that would then have on the the economy at large. And they say, clearly, these numbers were not not by Epidemiologist, but by Jason... I mean, if anybody wants to see this, there's you could look up Jason Abaluk, A-B-A-L-U-C-K, and he's on Twitter and he's also just generally on the internet. And the point he makes is that that, that figure of three to 6,000 is based on a reduced transmission probability of only 10% when they believe that the best estimates, not not their most optimistic estimate, but the best estimate, the protective value is between 40 to 50%. So the actual value, the 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 cash dollar value is the point they make is twofold and um I think we hopefully if everything goes out there's we're having a, I have a chat with uh, Sam Bowman on the economics of the shutdown and so and we touch briefly on this but a point that but Sam makes is you have to look at this from both sides okay the extent to which your likelihood to not contract the virus because you're wearing a mask. It's not massive because it's not massively aerosolized and it, people aren't spending large amounts of time outside. But there is some. But what it does do dramatically is if, you, if you're if you wearing a mask all the time when you're out, mixing with other people, and you happen to have the infection, and you, we, we know, Gary, I think at this stage, what we seem to think strongly, that large numbers of people who may have the virus are asymptomatic. Mm. And therefore, certainly, and certainly in the early stages of the infection, may not be at all aware that they have it. Now, if they are wearing masks, their capacity or likelihood to infect other people is significantly reduced. Mm. So it's not just a question of protecting myself from other people; it's also protecting other people from myself. No, but that's the thing: if you if you protect others from yourself, and others protect you from themselves, 
you will see a substantial reduction in your risk of contracting it, even though the individual behavior in isolation yes. is not designed to protect you. They do make the, the very good point that, and I think we've, we've made this on the show before, that clot masks, although less effective than N95 masks, uh, are for the general user roughly as effective because N95 masks are more technical to wear correctly, as in properly sealed, and that in that instance, they should be retained for healthcare personnel and frontline staff, and it's purely cloth masks. Yeah, this is the point that Abelok makes, is that by encouraging the general population to wear cloth masks, direct and directly in that direction, saying, listen, for ye, this is actually just as effective. Then you take away the pressure in the wider, pop, in the pop, in the mar- the wider market on the more sophisticated masks, which are being used and used probably ineffectively or less effective for the general population. And they're needed by people in the healthcare system and who will use them correctly. So you reserve those masks to them. Now, they obviously, used correctly, will have a much higher level. They do. The, the other thing I thought they were interesting was um, the, the average daily growth of confirmed positive in countries that have pre-existing mask norms versus countries that don't. And they say the average daily growth rate over the entire predicted spread of the virus or foreseeable spread of the virus that they've been able to model from countries so far is 18% in countries with no existing mass norms and 10% in countries that have it, which might sound relatively small, but is effectively a doubling or an increase of that, 80%. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a big change. But they also say that the value of, um, of masks for healthcare personnel could be in the millions, or at least in the hundreds of thousands, because the impact of a of a doctor or nurse getting sick is so much more substantial when you look at the impact on ICUs functioning and uh, the overwhelming of those facilities we've seen in Italy and seem to be seeing in Spain at the minute, and we'll probably see in certain parts of America like New York very, very rapidly. Numbers of healthcare workers as a total of the infected here was pretty high, I think, as uh, that hasn't been come clear. It'll be interesting to see when they do the breakdowns of those numbers. Uh, Some people have been writing about this and said that they suspect that actually, rather than talking about doctors and nurses working in the the hospital system, that we're actually more talking about people working in, in care homes and respite homes, that kind of thing. But we'll see. On the on the nursery homes, I saw there that we now have forty clusters of COVID nineteen in nursing homes. Yeah, uh, up from three a couple of weeks ago. That would indicate uh, to me that the debt rate we are seeing the daily death figures are going to spike, and they're going to spike oh, yeah, noticeably. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. However, I think it is important to uh, point out that that will most likely be due to these nursing homes. It won't be a higher debt rate amongst the general populace as no, such. No. It will be because it looks like nursing homes are just folding under this. And that does bring me to an important point here. Um, It's been a consistent thing throughout this thing that expert advice and government advice has been, in some cases, excellent. There have seen some things they've undertone, like social distancing and showing people how to actually wash your hands, that I think will actually be rather impactful. But the nursing homes, they decided to limit all visitors into them weeks ago. Because they said, well, COVID-19 is the single greatest way of telling if someone is going to die of COVID-19. The the single factor is age. And so they said, well, we're going to cut down on visitors because if COVID-19 gets into nursing homes, they're enclosed, they're full of the most at-risk demographic, it'll be a bloodbath. And a directive came down from the HSE 
yeah. that said, reopen the nursing homes to visitors. And that happened on the 10th of March. And at that time, I don't know if, if you can remember this, Michael, we had comments from the HSE about how the most important thing they could do at the minute was to limit panic. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, by reopening the nursing homes, they limited panic. And now it looks like the long-term cost of limiting that panic, they got a, which I think, frankly, was pretty insubstantial because nursing homes are not a great source of panic. It looks like we're going to see the debt to- debt rate spike noticeably. I, I don't know if we talked about this at the time. I know we talked about it off air, but I'm not sure if we talked about it on the podcast. But it was a moronic choice at the time. It was it's... It was ludicrous. And now it looks like it's coming home to roost. You know, a couple of things about it, I suppose. <clears throat> the first thing is, uh, some a number of people have been asking why these new restrictions have been brought into play in the last couple of weeks. In the last in the last week, when uh, we hadn't seen the exponential growth that uh, we had flattened the curve, instead of fifteen thousand infections at the end of March, we saw three thousand. Every uh, it nothing other. And to me, when I saw that at that stage, seventeen clusters had been new clusters, and they were all associated with care homes, it seemed to me that what was it weren't. And I may be off the wall here, but actually, what the government's doing is closing it down as much as they can possibly can, because the nature of this demographic is going to mean that if we saw the same number of infections occurring randomly within the general population, then we would expect the number of people requiring ICU care to be 5% of that. And since the numbers in the new cases have been reasonably low, I mean, they went up to 400, which was the highest, down to to 300, then to 261, that it was manageable. But the fact is, the nature of the demographic and the or the, or the, the the people involved in this case is that far, far more of these people are going to need hospitalisation and ICU care, and this is going to put very serious strain. Gary, it, I mean, it, it, I, the whole thing is bizarre. On the sixth of January, of sixth of March, visitor restrictions were announced by Nursing Homes Ireland, right? Um, and the Protect for the protect. I can. Uh, they said at the time for the protection of home residents, the restrictions will be in place. Non essential. There will be no non essential visiting. Children. There will be no groups, or ch- there will be no children allowed. All visitors had to contact before the visit. They and visitors should only seek to attend in urgent circumstances. And the management reserved the right to impose full restrictions. And that was on the sixth of March. By the on the tenth of March, they get an order from the top. Now. And somebody that we know uh, was talking to a person involved in this who was managing a care home and they were visiting a person now and they were told explicitly the only reason they were visiting this person and this was the only person that that, that was being given visitors because the person involved was actually towards the end of their lives and they, was, uh, were, they were actually in the process of dying. Otherwise, no visit. And, she, and they were asked, but the direction, the, the restrictions have been changed. You know, they've relaxed. She said, I don't care. Nobody, nobody else is coming in here. This, if she, they, she had imposed really strict controls about pe- when people came in, about their clothes, about the protective, about the masks, the whole thing. Temperatures taken. She said she was being very, very careful insofar as she could. Now, Gary, it, we should be, I suppose, fair. Some of these infections may inevitably happen through staff coming in, but it seems to me to be very strange. You have this. That you relax care, you ra- you relax the uh, the restriction uh, in this fashion, and then you suddenly how many how, how many hotspots now? Forty. That's that's not statistically that's not an accident. And these people will die. 
very large numbers of these people died. Tony Hollihan, the person who said that the restrictions on visitors were not appropriate and were not necessary at that time, he is also the chap who, well, I won't say chap, advised Simon Harris not to have a review of the um, cervical check. Yes, but instead correct. asked that he be told to prepare a report on it for the minister's attention. And then one of uh, a patient advocate called Lorraine Walsh, who was sitting on the steering group of cervical check, sent her, she made some comments criticizing him. And he sent her a uh, letter saying that he, if she repeated her remarks, there would be a very strong response and that she should withdraw her original claims as to his mismanagement of the issue. Oh, that's rather unfriendly. No, I mean, it's not really, it doesn't really have any bearing on the matter at hand, but it's just good to understand the people who make these decisions. But I think this was, I mean, it's, people will say it's very easy for people sniping uh, from the sidelines Fun too. about diff- difficult decisions. But you know what? Some decisions are just, this is a decision which when it happened, we said, and Gary, not just lots of people were saying, what the fuck is that? We are told two things. As you say, this was a time when the number one aim was for prevention of panic. Not to close down infection, but to prevent panic because, you know, we were all going to run out into the street with pitchforks and start setting things on fire. That was always the grave danger. But the other thing is, the other constant message was that we had to be protecting the most vulnerable. Everybody had to, people with underlying conditions, people with asthmatic, people with compromised immune systems, and the elderly. And in the context of that, they said, "Oh, actually, oh, gosh, we should fire. open up, open up, open up the, the open up the care homes. It'll be all. It'll be all right. It's an excessive protection." What the? I mean, really? This was a. This seemed like a sensible thing to. All of the things you were thinking about, all of the choices you you had, you were being faced with. This was the choice that you thought was urgent enough to think. No, we're going to change policy on that. We're going to backtrack, and this is where we're. Going. And anyway, we are where we are, and people are going to. Do. But we stopped panic for a while. Oh, did we? No. Did did we even stop panic? I don't think so. I think Susan Mitchell saw to the saw to that. I think at the time people mostly looked at that and went, you know what? That that seems like a reasonable restriction. It's unpleasant, but it seems reasonable. Um, and then they removed it, and there was a sort of a what? It's unnecessary, yeah, it, it, you say. When will it become necessary? When it's spread into them. Exactly. When, when, at what point does this become necessary? I don't know. It's, um, anyway. Um, yes, actually, so just before we, we close, I think, we're hoping to have an interview with Eatman Gutman. Actually, we have an interview with Sam Bowman, the former director of the Adam Smith Institute. That should be going up tomorrow. He's uh, still a senior fellow of, still senior fellow of the Adam Smith. Um, but I'm really looking forward to Eatman Gutman, uh, Ethan Gutman interview. He, um, he wrote a book called Slaughter. Uh, he was a put forward for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017 for his work on trying to stop illegal and non-consensual harvesting of organs from political and religious dissidents in China. You make it sound like it's a bad thing. Um, yeah, I had to read through the, the China Tribunal on organ harvesting for an article I wrote during the week. And um, the Chinese Communist Party really are a bunch of shits. Yeah, I was I was talking to our, our mutual friend Paddy Manning, who was reading his book at the moment. Yes, because Paddy will probably be doing the um, interview, so he's he's just doing the prep work now. And he said to me, yeah, I could only read it for 10 minutes, and after 10 minutes I have to put it down and go out into the yard. And I asked him, I said, why is the writing bad? That's exactly what he, he said that to me, and that was exactly, is it just poorly written? I said, no, he said, no, Michael, it's not the writing. The writing's rather too good. It's the 
it's the content. I, I haven't read this book, and on the basis of what Paddy's saying, I don't know if I want to, but it seems to be absolutely horrific. Yeah, the uh, the Chinese, the Chinese tribunal, a lot of organs going missing, and now with COVID-19 and the double lung transplants, but the Chinese don't terribly care. I, I saw a research paper onto the Chinese official organ donation um, information. Okay. They did a, they, they researched it, and they found that the the data nearly perfectly conforms to a simple mathematical model. Oh, yeah, there you go, and not not a complicated one. Just it gives a perfect curve. A perfect curve. Yeah, that seems unlikely. That does seem unlikely, which is what the um what the researchers pointed out. You don't generally see in real life perfect curves. You mean it's almost like somebody had just taken the numbers that would be the the sort of the ideal and. Uh, normal. Uh, it, 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 it was it was a quadratic equation. It was just a quadratic equation. <laughs> and then when they looked into it, the Chinese had put in. Uh, had clearly there were cases where it was clearly non-consensual, and the Chinese had just ticked it off as voluntary. Solve solve for X. <laughs> but it's, the amount of stuff China does like this, or just. It knows that people don't care, and it knows the people of that do care. Many of them have accepted that. China is too integral to the business community to be punished for any of these things because it was hurt the West so much. Well, you see, that's the question, isn't it, Gary? Is it? We will. F- I think it's going to be very interesting. Now, I'm not sanguine. I don't think that we're actually going to see any terrible consequences for China. But I hear lots of people making grumbly noises, as the PJ Woodhouse would say. If they weren't disgruntled, they were actually very far from being gruntled about the way China has behaved. We may see a bit of a backlash. And China may discover, you know what? Yeah, we need you to make our tablets and our T-shirts. But you need us to buy it as well. There is, there is. I mean, China is about on the same moral level as Nazi Germany. There are a few things Nazi Germany did that China has not either done, is in the process of doing, or has exceeded. It's not at war well, yeah. no, no, it's not at war with the West. If anybody, by the way, wants to read a book which is incredibly upsetting, and we'll, you'll have to put it on, it, it's reminding me of money. The, the, but I think it's interesting in the context of what's happening at the moment, and it's what's happening in China. There's a book by Robert Burley, great English historian, Death and Deliverance, which is about the euthanasia programs, the forced euthanasia programs in Nazi Germany before the war. And I think that anybody looking at modern China would be interested in some of the some of the parallels you'll find there in certain elements of the way medic, medicine is being handled in China. But that's death and deliverance. It's dreadful, dreadful book, but brilliant. Anyway, Gary, this is all cheerful Sunday stuff. Uh, I suppose I would take this opportunity to wish everybody a good Sunday, uh, to enjoy themselves and to keep safe. And we will be back very soon. Monday, I said, we'll have the Bowman interview up on Monday. So we will be back on Wednesday, where we, I'm sure China will have done something else. Indeed. And if not, they just say will. They've been doing it for decades, so there's no reason to stop now. Millennia. Millennia, Gary. Anyway, bye-bye. Goodbye.